Hey, everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We've got a great episode for you coming up. Uh, we're going to speak with Andrew Jay. He's a general partner at Borna Health. He'll join us for the New Markers Newsmakers. And later on, I'm going to play our uh, most recent Medtronic Talks podcast. I'm not sure if you folks have had a chance to listen to it. It's uh, centered around healthcare inequity, and it's an important issue, one that keeps popping up. So I wanted to uh, play the entire episode. So you're going to hear the whole thing start to finish, theme music, sponsor messages. You'll hear that that episode just as it came out. So uh, I know you'll enjoy the insights uh, presented by Karen Shahidi and uh, John DeChapel of Medtronic. So I won't say much more since, again, there's a whole episode within an episode. It's kind of like one of those Russian dolls uh, waiting for you a little later in the podcast. So we'll hear, hear from Andrew J. first. We'll hear from uh, the folks at Medtronic a little later. I'm also going to connect with uh, George Strom. He's Business Development Director of IoT at Intertech. We'll talk about another piece of news that I wanted to highlight that uh, fell outside of the New Markers Newsmakers list. Before we begin this episode, though, I wanted to give you just a quick uh, update on where we are in all things Device Talks. I'm working on the agenda for Device Talks West. Registration for Device Talks West, which is happening on October 19th and 20th, actually uh, starts on Monday. So you can, uh, you can register starting then. Of course, there's an early bird special going on right from the start. It'll go on for a few months. But uh, do keep an eye on, uh, on the website, Device Talks. Or it's, the actual website is west.devicetalks.com. But just go to devicetalks.com. You can find the, uh, the page for West. We've got some great keynotes up there right now. But I'll be uh, building out the agenda in a bit. While you're at Device Talks, you can also check out our upcoming Device Talks Tuesday sessions. They're restarting again. We will uh, be back, not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, the 14th. We'll have a session brought to you by Intertech. Following that, the following week, we'll have a, a, a Device Talks episode, Device Talks Tuesday's episode brought to you by, by Pulse Technologies. And then we'll have Resonetics. And then July, we'll have presentations by Sunrise Labs and S3 Connected Health. And that will conclude sort of our, our spring, summer season of Device Talks Tuesday. But we'll, we'll be back in, uh, in late August, early September with more. So uh, Device Talks Tuesday is rearing back. Go to devicetalks.com to check out what these great companies are talking about. Finally, our podcast continue to roll out. We put out our Striker Talks earlier this week. I hope you saw that. That goes out through our Device Talks channels. You can also, uh, again, subscribe to Medtronic Talks. That's on its own channel. Uh, and keep an eye out for uh, an Intuitive Talks. Should be coming out in a few weeks. We'll bring that to you as well. And as well as a, a couple of uh, Medtronic Talks will come out this month. Uh, speaking of Device Talks Weekly, I am working on uh, a few episodes. We'll be looking at companies uh, in the medtech space, trying to take a deeper dive, talking to multiple executives within the same company. So I hope to bring you uh, bring you episodes centered around companies like Fractal and Cala. And uh, I think we'll. Uh, I, I'm I'm enjoying the conversations that I'm having with executives here. It's giving me a chance again to ask more detailed questions about their jobs and what they do. So I hope that'll bring you uh, even greater insights into the medtech industry. So that's a lot. Thanks for your patience and thanks for listening to it. Once again, Device Talks West happens October 19th and 20th. Please uh, circle those dates and uh, check back at devicetalks.com for the agenda. I hope to have a, an updated agenda, a complete agenda to you by, uh, by the end of this summer. So uh, keep your eyes peeled. We definitely want to see you there at the Santa Clara Convention Center. All right, you ready for this? Ready.
Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Hey, doing all right, Tom. It's uh, It's been a crazy uh, few weeks in the news, hasn't it? It really has, and it's why we brought in our, our third person in the booth. We have Andrew Jay. He's general partner at Borna Health Fund, a hedge fund in uh, in Boston. Andrew, you and I have known each other for uh, for a few years, going back to, to Siemens and beyond, I think, too, right? You were doing corporate VZ for them before. Yes, yes. We've at least 20 20- Five years. <laughs> you had to say that out loud. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, tell us a little bit about Borna, and then we're going to get into our new markets, newsmakers. So we're a healthcare dedicated hedge fund, and uh, most of what we do is in the medical technology sector. Fantastic. And how long have you been doing that? About a year and a half now. We okay. have money from family offices in Boston, Pittsburgh, Minneapolis. And I, I've started awesome. watching... I've started watching Billions. I imagine it's just like that. You're just like Bobby Axelrod. No, not yet. <laughs> <You're> like- <laughs> How big is your boat, Andrew? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it as big as Bobby's? No boat yet. No, no boat yet. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, like we said at the top, we brought you in because you're actually following the stock market. We have a lot of public-oriented uh, uh, topics on the new Markers Newsmakers this week. So uh, I had already given sort of a recap of where we are with device talks uh, prior to, to opening this session up, this segment up. So, Chris, why don't we just roll into, into number five? Yeah, here we go. All right. Well, number five on the list, we've got, uh, you know, Stryker's uh, spine guidance software, uh, one FDA clearance. It's their acute guidance system uh, for advanced uh, surgery planning. I mean, this story is getting a good amount of attention on mass device. I mean, it just seems like, you know, just another thing that Stryker is doing to, you know, further, uh, you know, burnish this kind of like, you know, uh, digital surgery, robotic, offering that they've, you know, really been, uh, you know, building in recent years that's, you know, really, uh, really done them well. Yeah. Well, we had them uh, presenting at Device Talks Boston about their, their digital strategy. And uh, Chris Chris called an audible through this through this one at us at the last minute this morning. So, uh, Andrew, I don't know if you had a chance to, to review it or if you have any thoughts just general on Stryker's approach on uh, on digital surgery and, and, uh, and robotic surgery. Well, Stryker's been doing an excellent job in this field, and in, in orthopedics, I think their robot is one of the one of the strongest offerings. And uh, the whole idea is you surround the physician with these tools, and through that, you get the hardware. And mm-hmm. so they're just uh, doing a great job. Absolutely, yeah. And I think they said at their uh, annual annual call last year that uh, I think it was half of their surgeries are being done with with. The, the robot. So uh, it's really, uh, really gained yeah. critical mass. So exciting. It's uh, we were obviously uh, we've got the Striker Talks podcast, which went out yesterday. That was focused on the neurovascular business. Uh, lots of exciting stuff happening there at Striker, and uh, good news for them on this this five take ten clearance. All right, Chris, what's uh? Yeah, very cool. What is number four? Well, number four on the list, we've got a uh, Quiddle uh, completing their six billion dollar acquisition of Ortho Clinical Diagnostics. You know, uh, just just you know further expanding. You know what what they're doing in the uh, diagnostic place. They've been a uh, you know a big. Uh, player with uh, COVID-19 tests, you know, in, in recent years. So, so just, uh, you know, I mean, we've been asking like, are, are mergers going to slow down with, you know, inflation and market turmoil and, you know, worries about whether we have a recession or whatnot. And, you know, here we do, we got a big, got a big $6 billion deal. And that, that is a huge deal. And, and before we get into the, the details of the deal, I always thought it was, is it Kydell or is it Quiddle? Andrew, do you have any insights on, on the pronunciation? Quiddell. Quiddell. Mm-hmm. All right. You were closer. Quiddell. Points to Newmarker Google. for that one. Google. You know what? I asked Google. Oh, so. <laughs> well, by all means. I asked, 
I, I, I did, I did some extensive research, Tom. <laughs> I, I asked Google before the call, like, how do I pronounce their company's name? Well done, sir. <laughs> yes. Coming prepared. Andrew, what's, uh, what's your take on the deal? It's a, it's a huge, a huge, uh, a huge merger. Well, this is interesting because this is COVID having exactly the opposite impact as one would expect because the uh, COVID testing revenues of drone Quidel revenues up tremendously. In the first quarter, they were a billion, up 167% year over year. And COVID testing drove that. What they're doing is something that's really smart. They're taking the profits from that and reinvesting that, that money into M&A to grow the business. And this acquisition yeah. makes them a player. Um, it gives them access to the central lab with automated systems, with uh, clinical chemistry, recurring revenues. So it's really a transformational acquisition for them. It takes them from being kind of a niche flu test player to really being a significant diagnostic player. You know, that reminds me that, I mean, Hologic's been doing a similar strategy as well. I mean, they got, you know, a bunch of uh, COVID money in and they've, they've been going shopping, doing these, all these tuck under acquisitions and acquiring technologies. So, uh, so yeah, it sounds like you can go shopping if you've, you know, if uh, you've been, uh, you know, selling a lot around the pandemic. And we'll, we'll talk about the, the uh, mergers and acquisitions environment a little bit later, but uh, is there anything in particular that's, that's, uh, but it's present within the public market or characteristic of the public markets today. They're making big deals like this more possible. Is it just the the the, the surge that we had previously seen and, and the values of stocks that make deals like these more likely? That's a good point. What we've seen across the sectors is the multiples contracting. So if you go back six months, you, it was very common to see companies trading at 10 times revenues and as high as 20 times revenues for high growth companies. And now the, the range has come in significantly. The fast growing companies are now valued about 10 times revenues. And there's a number of companies trading for less than the cash on their balance sheet as you get down to the smaller end of the universe. So all of a sudden companies that previously were, oh, that's too expensive to buy. Oh, interesting. Are now, gee, well, maybe we can afford that. Maybe we can make this work. So the environment has changed from a oh, that's cool. affordability perspective. Do from a buyer's perspective, do they still have the funds necessary to make those deals? If if the prices go down, they're going down for everybody. So those who maybe had, if they have the cash, cash is cash. But if they were going to buy it with stock, they have less buying ability than they did before. Does it kind of even itself out uh, in terms of buyers and sellers? Well, to an extent, but the cash is cash, and yeah. even though interest rates have moved up, they they're still very very low. So. If there's a deal to be done, there's generally financing for it for oh, cool. company okay, with cash. Cool. So it's a we'll see. We could see more of these. So it's a buyer's market. Nice. All right, Chris. Let's. Uh, I love number three. Let's roll into into number three. Hey, number three on the list. We've got uh, you know Medtronic. Well, you know, I mean, to start out, Medtronic. I mean, they uh, they, they had uh, Q4 earnings that uh, that missed the street. They're really wrestling with some uh, supply chain uh, problems uh, right now. Um, it's a problem in general for many companies, but they, they especially have, you know, some supply chain problems they're working through. But, you know, at the same time that they had these Q4 earnings, uh, they had this really interesting news that they're, uh, you know, spinning off their uh, kidney care company and they're going to like jointly own it with uh, Davida, you know, so Medtronic and Davida are, you know, going to be partnering to create this, uh, you know, new, uh, you know, renal care uh, solutions business, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about whether, you know, Medtronic was going to start, you know, divesting some stuff, you Mm -hmm. know, to, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, you know, get more, get more streamlined. And, uh, you know, this seems to be, it'll it'll be interesting to see uh, what else comes out of, uh, 
you know, what else Medtronic does, but this definitely seems to be a, a move they're making right now to, you know, like they're going to you know, partner with DaVita to start this uh, renal care company. So this is a good move. Medtronic has a problem. First quarter, the revenue, organic revenue growth was 1%. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to outgrow the market when you are the market. When they acquired Covidian, they acquired a lot of different uh, business units. And so it makes sense to spin this one out. The dialysis center is not a core customer for them. It's not a key business for them. They weren't selling really high value products. So this is an opportunity to get this business off their income statement. They're not going to invest in it themselves. So it take kind of is one the first step, and I believe what will be several steps of taking businesses that are either not growing or not strategic and uh, finding new homes. Yeah. Is this is this the other shoe in regards to uh, Medtronic's uh, reorganization last year where they, they split up into the 20 uh, operating units? Was this sort of, was that sort of a first step to identify those units which maybe aren't going to be along for the ride? I don't know if that particularly was a design mm-hmm. step to do that, but it certainly helps you facilitate where the pieces are that aren't growing or that where the chunks are that you need to Hmm. to pull them out and begin to identify them, get them to think independently so that they're more easily identified and more more easily segregated. I've noticed in the analyst notes, they've been kind of pushing them to do more of that. Like they're kind of like, hey, you know, that diabetes business, you know, like, like, why don't you, I mean, we're, we're seeing kind of those like suggestions coming out of the analysts. No, it's it's uh, certainly an interesting time. And in the, in the diabetes space, I mean, I'm sorry, diabetes, the, the renal space, Sorry, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> the renal space. I mean, it's it's one where we've seen a lot of change too in how it's delivered. We're seeing a lot more at home dialysis. It seems to be a an, an area that's in flux. Do you do you, at least to me? Do you see it that way as well? I, I do, and there's some great technologies coming out and for yeah. at home use, and also simplifying the process even within hospitals, um, which is good for diabetic patients ultimately because the easier it is, the more convenient it is. Uh, the better off the patients are. You can administer the therapy more frequently, which gives better outcomes. And um, so it's it's a win-win for everyone. That kind of dynamic situation, a smaller company can sometimes do better. I mean, every once in a while, a big company does something like really, wow, you did something innovative. I mean, I mean, Medtronic did that with their micro leadless pacemaker, but, um, but you know, a lot of times a smaller company can be a little more nimble and figure things out, it seems. Yeah, we had uh, Leslie Trigg of Outset on. They're obviously doing some good things. And, and I know Fresenius made a deal recently that was uh, changed things up a bit. We've been trying to get them on the podcast, so I don't have particulars on that. But uh, there's a lot, seems to be a lot of movement in the, in, the, uh, in the renal space for sure. Chris, let's roll into number two. Hey, well, number two on the list, we had a we had a Massimo shareholders in their uh, recent meeting. They uh, they voted no on uh, on on the way the uh, company's been handling executive pay. Now, this was an advisory bo- vote. These stay on pay votes, you know, they don't require the uh, board to do anything. But it was it's kind of uh, putting the uh, Massimo uh, board on on notice that uh, they uh, you know they aren't uh, you know they aren't at least a, a slight majority of the shareholders are not happy with executive compensation. And, you know, it's, uh, this is really interesting. It's, it's become a trend. I mean, we had, 
Sam Pay votes that uh, Zimber Biomed and uh, Henry Shine, where the companies did win them, but it was a pretty narrow margin. I mean, usually, like, you know, the companies like get 80, 90% of the shareholders saying, like, yeah, the compensation's fine. And now, you know, they're uh, barely winning, or in the case of Massimo, they're they're losing. And, uh, you know, this, uh, I, you know, I, the, the Wall Street Journal had an interesting report recently pointing out that actually there are dozens of companies across all kinds of industries where this is happening. You know, JP Morgan, Intel, Coca Cola. It kind of seems that, you know, in the past, you know, know, like it was just all about like, you know, the bottom line and, you know, financial performance. But, you know, you're seeing more investors and shareholders saying that they want to, you know, they, 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 they have opinions about the way the executives are paid and they have opinions about the environment and about, you know, what, what the company is doing with social responsibility. Um, so it's, it's an interesting trend. Yeah. this And this is one of the areas, Andrew, that we really wanted you to bring some insights on because you can just uh, it's clear that this is going. This is across industries, as Chris said. But I also don't know if this is just sort of some expression of frustration from from shareholders overall, or if it's a concerted comment about about executive teams across industries or in medtech in particular. And uh, since you're one of these uh, one of these investors, we'd love to understand how you're viewing all this. So the I see this as being, as you pointed out, frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the iShares uh, index for medical technology, it's down 20% off its peak from last year. If you look at Massimo in particular, they made an acquisition that is still not clear what the how it's going to work out. And that did some yeah. very significant damage to their stock price. It was a head scratcher. Yeah. I mean, like, like high-end speakers, you know, Sound United. So. so you have an overall kind of dissatisfaction with, how executives are paid across the the stock market. And then medtech is having a difficult time. So that also amplifies it in that sector. But overall, the the executive pay in medical technology is not egregious. Mm. There are some examples, but it's not, it's not like you'd see in some of the media or communications and some of those other industries. Yeah. So the executives generally are are reasonably paid. And a large part of their compensation is tied to stock performance. You know, that was the case with Massimo. I mean, Joe Chiani, I mean, I mean, his overall compensation was just up 5% from the year before. And, you know, in his case, exactly. It was mostly, uh, you know, you know, related to, you know, stock, I mean, you know, like stock awards, option awards. I mean, so, you know, he's, he's got to grow the company to, you know, get all this money. So he's aligned with the shareholders. So it's interesting. They, the majority of them though said, no, we don't, we don't like this. So it's, it's really... <laughs> Like, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe it's like something like, you know, frustration going on. Um, I also wonder, okay, this might be just totally, you know, a bad guess here, but but, but I'll just throw this out as that, you know, right now, you know, we, we're having economic turmoil. We've got a labor shortage. Um, you know, the old classic thing to do when you had economic turmoil was like, okay, we're going to let go of some workers and, you know, it's going to save us money. And you know, you, I mean, it seems really hard to do that right now. I mean, because everybody's complaining they don't have enough workers. So, um, you know, maybe looking at these executive pay packages, maybe that's what the investors are doing, saying like, hey, you know, you know, why, why are they making $15 million a year, you know, or $20 million a year or whatever, you know, like, I, I wonder if maybe that's part of what's going on. Well, I think those numbers are, the those 15, $20 million numbers are pretty unusual. And if you cut executive pay, it doesn't really make a difference on, on the bottom line that, that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it sounds, the numbers individually sound big, but when you spread it over a billion dollar right, business yeah. and from, from an impact perspective, the way a board works is you have a compensation committee Okay, so when this vote came through, what they did is they had a compensation study. They 
had somebody look at executive compensation about the ind- across the industry, and they said, "Well, where where do we lie?" Right. And they they look at the comps and they they say, "Okay, you know, we're in the middle third, or we're in the top quartile, but the company's been doing better." Or, "Okay, we're going to bear that in mind in future years." Um, it's very difficult to cut the pay of an executive unless there's something drastically wrong with the business. Yeah. So where the impact will be is down the road in terms of increases. I mean, no board, no board is going to want to be like, oh, we lost our CEO because, you know, who was doing a pretty good job just because we didn't want to pay him competitively, you know, like. Exactly. The the switching cost of an executive is, is enormous because you've got to it's going to take you six months to find a replacement. Um, you have the chaos internally. The organization says, well, we will need to make a decision on this, but we want to wait till the new CEO is in place because right. that person's going to have to live it with it and drive it. So it does the, the, the switching costs around an executive change, a lead executive change are pretty significant hmm. in terms of where you're going and how the business is moving. If it's something like syringes, which are a commodity product, you just, cranking them out, then it's just kind of, okay, we keep running the company till we right and status quo. But if it's something that involved, it's an active and dynamic market there, the, the CEO plays an important role and it's the having of in flux really slows the organization. Yeah. Down. yeah you don't want to have nobody at the wheel. So, <laughs> so are, are votes like these kind of just like a non, and they are exactly that a non-binding referendum, just an opportunity for investors to, to, to ding a CEO or send a message and, and that's sort of where it ends. It's, it's, it's not ignored. The board takes it. It becomes an agenda item for the board and they become aware of it. Mm-hmm. And the compensation committee does their kind of individual work and brings on the consultant and they do the overviews and then they have it as a discussion point, but it's not, it, do, it, it doesn't lead to, oh, my gosh, we need to change something. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's, okay, we need to bear this in mind as we go forward, and it's we're not egregious. We just need to think about this and be cognizant of the optics as we go forward. I also wonder if, uh, if Massimo is just a victim of being third, if the other two sort of got some steam going, and then finally this was the one that kind of got pushed over the line. Maybe not. Yeah, but kind of felt like it. Yeah. Do you think we'll see some more of these, or or is this these isolated isolated votes? I think, well, given the where the, the stock market's doing, I think there's <laughs> going to be more frustration, and I yeah. think there's going to be more irritation, and well, um, and so a little bit more uh, irritability. So I think there'll be more of these. I would definitely say, you know, in the past, these shareholder votes were kind of like, oh, you know, we'll we'll check them out if we have time, you know, with our reporting. And uh, in this environment, it's definitely become a lot more like, you know, somebody really needs to look at all the shareholder votes and see what happened with all these companies because because uh, it's interesting things are happening. Absolutely. Um, well, we had the uh, Johnson and Johnson, you know, they. Uh, Majority of shareholders said you need to do a racial justice audit. I mean, that was mm-hmm. uh, that was interesting. So yeah, the the shareholders are definitely it's not it's not rubber stamp shareholder meetings going on right right now. It's uh, it's they're they're interesting. Who knew shareholder meetings could be exciting? Yeah, they're being heard. All right, let us uh, let us move on to uh, number one of the new markets, newspapers, Chris. You know, number one on the list is about rumors. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Would you get sued by Stevie Nicks if you like did a little sound clip, a song clip or something? Uh, I, I will. I'll, I'll look that one up. I'll, I'll, we'll talk <laughs> right. to the Device Talks attorneys about that. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> the former members of Fleetwood Mac have shut us down. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> like, <laughs> that guy's good lawyers. Anyway, um, 
Yeah, I mean, let's don't do that, Tom. Don't do it. But you know, anyway, <laughs> um, you know, you're talking about this environment with mergers. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of rumors lately about different potential big, you know, med tech rumors. And, you know, uh, you know, one of one of those was that uh, Dexcom was going to uh, acquire uh, Insulet. You know, this was based off a, a Bloomberg report where they cited people with knowledge of the uh, of the matter. I've noticed Bloomberg's really good about finding anonymous sources around who's saying, hey, a deal is in the works, you know. So they, they had one of these. And uh, Dexcom with, uh, you know, the uh, American Diabetes Association conference coming up, took the unusual step of actually putting out a statement a few days later saying, no, no, we're not. Definitely was very lawyerly, but they uh, said, uh, you know, that that they uh, wanted to confirm that Dexcom is not in active discussions regarding a merger transaction at this time. So, you know, they, uh, you know, they said that was done. Um, you know, another story, which is beginning a lot of attention on mass device was we had, uh, you know, one of the, uh, you know, one of the analysts who really follows this industry, Needham Companies, uh, Mike Matson, uh, was, uh, you know, rating on Boston Scientific stock to buy, uh, partly because uh, he thinks J&J might buy them. Um, he thinks Johnson Johnson might buy the company. Um, you know, we've got a no comment from the companies, of course, off that. But, um, you know, he, you know, he had a, a whole, uh, you know, thing that he laid out, you know, about how, you know, J&J is, you know, spinning off their, uh, you know, consumer business, you know, they need to, he thinks they need to find a big acquisition to, you know, make sure that their med tech business is about as large as their pharmaceutical business. And, you know, he thought that, uh, you know, Boston Scientific would be a, a good uh, fit for them. This isn't the first time that somebody's made this guess. I mean, actually, Mike Mahoney ran J&J's medical device business, you know, before he joined about a decade ago. And back then, you know, J&J was uh, friendly, unusually friendly about him, you know, moving over to Boston. Boston Scientific, which caused some speculation at the time, like, oh, maybe there's going to be a merger, you know, because, wow, they seem to be getting along right now, um, you know, which didn't happen. Uh, but uh, I, I know, uh, I know when you heard this, Tom, you were especially, you thought this would be great, right? You were just <laughs> clicking your Boston heels. Guy. And- <laughs> no, no, as a Boston guy, I want, I want, I want my Boston Scientific uh, in Boston, or at least as much as it could be. Like, don't take Andrew, my Boston I- Scientific away from Boston. <laughs> Andrew, this is, uh, again, we, we I alluded at the top that there's been a lot of merger talk, and this is another reason why we brought you in, just to, to bring some, shed some light on on these discussions. I mean, Mike Matson is great, and and we will hope to have him on the podcast in the future. Uh, he knows the industry. Uh, what When you see something like this, do you see this as, as there being some fire that's generating smoke, or is this just more of a, uh, uh, as Chris said, sort of a continuing of a, an old storyline? How, how are you viewing things? So I, I look at this as part of an ongoing speculation in that it does make sense for J&J to move into these, those uh, pacemaker defibrillator markets. For J&J to grow that device business, they've got to acquire something with significance. And uh, Boston Scientific is a significant player in a desirable market. I do know that years ago, the J&J looked at buying St. Jude and couldn't get it past their, uh, their main board. Um, so they do have an interest in those markets. They're profitable. They're natural oligopolies. At one time, J&J was a big player in interventional cardiology, the first coronary stent. Mm-hmm. So they know these markets that Boston Scientific is in. They know they're profitable. Um, so it would make sense to move into those. And it is a big company. From a background perspective, I wonder uh, when Peter Nicholas was alive, I just didn't think a transaction transaction like this was likely because I hmm. believe that he always viewed Boston Scientific as 
its creation and wanted it to be kind of alive and vital. So it's with his passing transaction like this, maybe more, maybe more plausible. Interesting. Interesting. That, that, that hadn't occurred to me that there, there just might be a, 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 an opportunity that wasn't was the door that was previously closed is now open on, on a deal like this. Um, Nothing. He, he wasn't he wasn't the controlling shareholder, but he certainly was influential on the company. And I think um, he certainly had the ear of many people about that. Um, so him now no longer being having that voice could change the dynamic a little bit. Yeah, just just passed away in mid-May at age 80. So what is the what is the Johnson and Johnson's need? They just need to find the faster growing businesses someplace. Exactly. Exactly. If they, yeah. if they need to get bigger, they need to move into large markets. And there's not many large markets left that they're not involved. In. Yeah. No, that's a that's an interesting point. All right. Well, yeah. so uh, how do you see this? Do you, do you, if we were to talk again in, in a year, do you see a deal happening, either this deal or, or another deal by J&J? I see probably another deal. I don't think this deal's too likely to happen, but you never know. You never know, yeah. right? All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, well, this has been really, really enlightening. I'm just curious overall, uh, how do you see things, uh, the public markers, MedTech-wise, uh, going forward? Uh, before I push record, you you shared that you got a sense that we may not have found bottom yet. Uh, what does the next, what does the summertime look like? Wait, we're not at the, the bottom? <laughs> That's what I said, no! Chris. <laughs> so when can I look at my 401k again? Can I- yeah, right. <laughs> well, there's an old expression, which is sell in May and go away. So we're going into yeah. months, which traditionally are kind of a lackluster period for, for, for the market overall. And I think what we've seen with MedTech is MedTech rolled over first, and then the rest of the market has since followed MedTech. And part of the reason was why MedTech went first. It was we had the COVID boost when everybody wanted to be in healthcare when the rest of the economy cooled and now MedTech became moved out of favor. And now kind of the whole market's just having a difficult time and the medical technology sector and healthcare to a certain extent is caught up in that. I don't I think it's going to be hard for healthcare to really take off as an investment sector until the market at least finds stability. The good news is that MedTech's a very profitable market. Demand is there. We're all getting older. Most of us are getting heavier. And as you get older and heavier, you need more you need more medical care and more medical devices. That's that's uh, I, I'm I'm working on yeah. it, Andrew, but thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> Uh, excellent. All right. Well, so I, well should, can... I should go get a burrito for lunch today to help out the medical <laughs> right. device industry. We're helping out. We're helping out. Exactly. <laughs> right? We're doing our part, Chris Newmark, you and I. <laughs> that's right. uh, that's great. Well, where can folks find out more information about Borna? Are you out on social media? Um, we do have a website, um, or you can find me on LinkedIn and um, we'll connect that way. Awesome. Great. Well, this has been very uh, enlightening and, and fun, Andrew. We'll definitely have you back. Yeah. All very right. cool. Thanks, Tom. It was nice having somebody knowledgeable. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everyone, Tom here. I mentioned up at the top, I had a a news item of my own. I was sort of struck by the the U.S. Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency releasing advisories on two products put out by BD, uh, according to the article written by Sean Hooley. These were centered around vulnerabilities with BD's Pixis Automated Medication Dispensing System and the BD Synapsis Microbiology Informatics Software. 
So uh, cybersecurity, of course, is a big issue. And uh, I wanted to speak with uh, one of our uh, partner experts, Intertech, which is uh, coincidentally putting out its Device Talks Tuesday episode. It'll be centered around cybersecurity. And uh, I had a chance to speak with George Strom. He's Business Development Director of IoT. We did not speak specifically about BD. We didn't want to speak specifically about BD. But I asked George a few questions about the state of cybersecurity within MedTech. And I wanted to get an understanding of what folks who registered for the upcoming Device Talks Tuesday would learn. So uh, let's hear from George Strom. Again, he's Business Development Director of IoT at Intertech. So George, we saw some, some news this week on the, on the cybersecurity front and the risks that it that presents and cybersecurity threats present to medical devices. I know at Intertech, uh, you're working on this with a number of, of device companies. Uh, how, how much of a, uh, an issue has this become for device companies as they file for approval from the FDA? What, what sort of steps are they taking? What hoops are they being uh, required to, uh, to move through? The FDA on April 8th released new requirements for pre-market requirements directly related to cybersecurity. And within that document, they, they talk about vulnerability management plans. And they recommend that the manufacturers submit the vulnerability communication as part of the permanent submissions. So this is a major shift uh, on a pre-market requirement as now the, the communication plan must include everything from the sources and methods and frequency they, they monitor and identify the vulnerabilities as well as periodic security testing to test identified vulnerability impact. So within software, all software has vulnerabilities, not saying that you should not have vulnerabilities in your software. What they're stating is that you should have a methodology to address when that vulnerability becomes a threat and how you handle that threat and how you go about develop and release patches to that threat and how you update your process and have that patching capability. Is that our patches and steps like that something that device companies have to plan out for in advance and have it ready? I imagine if they have a patch at the ready, they would just patch it. Uh, or is this something that's typically done on the fly after the, the, the weakness is found? No, they have to have a process for patching. And it could be everything from over-the-air updates to having a technician go to the actual device. Possibly it's a portal where the manufacturer, where the client, the end client would then go to the portal and download the patch. But they must have a process for, for patching. And, and how big of an issue has this become? Clearly, we hear about it globally and, and across all industries, but for, for medical devices in particular, uh, cybersecurity, I imagine, is a, is a growing threat. Do we have any data to sort of suggest or the, the scope of the problem or any, any information of any kind to kind of give us a sense of what direction we're headed? The problem has become very pervasive, and, I, and it, it largely dovetails from the growth of connected products onto the end patient bed, as well as the, the growth of home healthcare products. Those are probably the two biggest arenas we're seeing clients with questions. But what we're also seeing from the regulators back to the clients is the amount of cloud-connected devices uh, represents a threat vector that wasn't previously there for medical device clients and where the data stored and is that patient data secure and could that data be then taken away by somebody or the IP of the product. So those are really drivers. It's the growth of cloud-connected products packaged with remote monitoring, packaged with how devices are now moving into different non-traditional arenas, non-secure hospital settings, if you would. Excellent. And I know you're going to be addressing a lot of this on the Device Talks Tuesdays that's coming up on June 14th at, uh, at 4 p.m. What are some of the uh, other issues that are other pieces of information that people might get from uh, the Device Talks Tuesdays that's coming up? Well, I think an important factor for a lot of manufacturers is to understand the growth of regulations, but also how they're integrating the, if they have wireless connections or even USB ports on the device and to plan for that cybersecurity and not try to plug it in 
And this is very much so the cornerstone of what the FDA is advocating, that you have to have a, a plan and a threat model of, of what will happen to your device. And that's really very critical for device manufacturers to understand is that if they go to a regulator such as the FDA and they don't have a plan and they don't have objective evidence, a third-party test report, so likely the likelihood of that pro- that tech file being kicked back is very high, and the FDA would be very prescriptive of what you would have to do as a manufacturer. Equally, we'll be covering uh, topics such as traditional connectivity, such as the integration of uh, Bluetooth or Wi-Fi onto your product and, and the regulations you have to follow for, for that approval, as well as wireless coexistence with our experts uh, on the Intertech staff. Great. All right, George. Well, thank you for uh, for the insights on the, the news of the week and uh, look forward to talking to you on June 14th on Device Talks Tuesday. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. I look forward to it as well. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Once again, you can uh, register for that discussion at devicetalks.com. And while you're there, you can check our other Device Talks Tuesdays episodes coming up in June and July. Now it's time for our podcast within a podcast. Let's hear our latest Medtronic Talks podcast episode. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to our second season of Medtronic Talks. In our first season, we spoke with the leaders of Medtronic's operating units to better understand the direction of each of the businesses. Now, with their courses set and clear, we're going to talk to the engineers, scientists, physicians, and other experts who are executing on these strategies. We'll still keep a tight focus on each of Medtronic's businesses, but we are going to get a lot deeper into these stories. Let's go. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Medtronic Talks podcast. We're going to tackle a very important topic today, health care equity. Our guests are Karen Shahady. She is Senior Medical Affairs Program Director at Medtronic and Dr. John DeChapel. He is Chief Medical Officer, Vice President, Medical Affairs of America's Region at Medtronic. We spoke today about the problem of healthcare inequity. What are the root causes how can technology be used to bring healthcare equity together to, to, to make healthcare more equitable? We talked about Medtronic's work across industries, how they're working with others, what the federal government is doing. We covered a lot. Very important conversation and uh, happy to have Karen Shahady and John DeChapel here on the podcast. I learned a lot. I'm sure you will as well. Before we begin, I wanted to bring in our sponsor, MTD Micro Molding. I'm grateful that they stepped up and sponsored this podcast this episode in particular, it's a very important issue. And uh, again, thank you, MTD Micro Molding, for stepping up and making this episode possible. I spoke with Gary Hulecki. He is CEO of MTD Micro Molding. Gary, tell me, what does MTD Micro Molding do? MTD Micro Molding is a contract manufacturer for all med device companies. We have a specific focus in medical micro molding. That's all we do. And everything we do everything here from material handling to packaging. Products we take on is uh, medical implants, medical components, pharmaceutical packaging. We do prototype, pilot production, high cavitation production. We use um, standard, any kind of thermoplastics, uh, bioabsorbable resins. All the molding is done in class eight clean rooms. We use scientific molding principles, validation processes, IQOQPQ. We also do cavity pressure monitoring with RJG equipment. We have a robust um, 
metrology lab with all kinds of laser scanning, touch probe, CT scanning, and we also do full custom packaging and assembly. That's great. As always, we'll hear more from MTD Micromolding CEO Gary Hulecki a little later in the podcast. If you want to find out more information about MTD Micromolding, go to mtdmicromolding.com. Now, let's begin this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. Well, Karen Shahady and John DeChapel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks for having Tom. us. Great to be back. Well, I'm glad to have you here on the program. We're here to talk today about uh, health equity and what Medtronic and the medtech industry is doing to, number one, identify the problem, define the problem, but also, of course, solve the problem. It's one that's been with us for, for decades. It's one that's received new attention as of late as it should. And I know there are a number of efforts underway to rectify it. So I think the entire discussion would benefit from uh, uh, just a general understanding of what does health equity mean. And Karen Shady, I was hoping you could start us with that. Sure. And, you know, we've looked at um, the CDC definition around this just to say, you know, what is CDC saying about it? And, you know, they really look at making sure that health equity is achieved when every person has the opportunity to attain her or his full potential and when no one is disadvantaged from achieving that potential because of socially determined circumstances. And so it's trying to look at, you know, making sure that we can close any gaps around access, quality, and outcomes to care. And so we've really been focused on ensuring that we can do exactly that and focus on access, improving quality, and achieving outcomes. I think it should be self-evident, but it probably isn't. What What is uh, limiting that access? How are people being kept from the care they, they need? That's what we're exploring right now. And there's a lot of work being done with our operating units right now to say, why? You know, we just completed a large market study from our neuro, neurosciences business trying to say, Exactly that. Why? They did a quantitative and a qualitative analysis using data, looking at um, doing interviews of people to try to figure out, you know, number one, is there a gap? And then if there is a gap, where is the gap? Is it race or is it place? And then why is there a gap? Is it social determinants of health? You know, what's going on? So a lot of our operating units are doing exactly that by leveraging data and analytics to really take that deep dive and figure out what is the problem and where is it, why is it, because then we can really start to figure out what it is that needs to be done in a more directed manner. And so that's the approach that we're taking now is put together a framework so that we can really take a more methodical approach to this. That's great. John, can you sort of to complete the picture, who is being impacted by this and, and what does the impact of health inequity look like? Yeah, sure. So Karen talked about gaps and it's really important to study where the gaps exist and then understand if you want to fix the problem, then you have to understand the specific barriers that are keeping people from getting high quality care. And there's some examples that are very well recognized, such as heart disease, where there is a difference in mortality rate between the white population and the black population of some 30%, or even more marked in things like colorectal cancer, where it's a 40% mortality difference. 
what we're doing is outside of those disease states, looking at the other disease states, such as Parkinson's disease and finding that there's a measurable gap there and then taking the next step and saying, okay, what are the barriers to care? So first off, I think you have to recognize kind of the potential inequities in care. So ones that all of us go to first would be race or ethnicity, right? And I mentioned that just a moment ago, black versus white, but there's other potential drivers of inequities or or disparities of health outcomes. It can be language, it can be geography, it could be gender, it could be sexual orientation. So we need to take a broad view, come into this open-minded, and then narrow our focus once we identify what the barriers really can be to try to fix it. Do we have a sense of which way the, the needle is swinging in terms of better, between better and, and worse? You mentioned geography. I'm thinking of uh, rural healthcare is is really suffering. A lot of hospitals and, and less populous areas are being shut down. I mean, we don't seem to be heading in the right direction just based on, on geography. We can talk about income disparity, disparity and other issues as well, but uh, which way are we headed in this? Yeah, you know, geography, I think, is, is one of the more underappreciated ones. And to, to your point, shortages of, of healthcare providers in more rural settings, it's just unrealistic to expect someone to go drive three, four hours to see a specialist who they may have to see on an ongoing basis to get the appropriate level of care. So they end up seeing a primary care physician who just by definition, can't be expert in every single disease state. And so the quality of care could be different for someone in a rural setting versus someone in a more suburban or urban one. And so we need to think about if that, in fact, is a barrier to high quality care, then what can we do about it? Now, there's some new catalysts that are being discovered, such as telehealth, that can start to address that. Remote patient monitoring can also start to bridge that distance gap. So there are solutions, but first we identify the problem and then we can come with solutions. And maybe that's why Medtronic is so particularly interested in this because we have unique data analytic capabilities coupled with technology offerings that that can make a difference. Tom, just to add to that, you know, it's great that we have such phenomenal technology with you know, remote monitoring capabilities, telehealth, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of key stakeholders like the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, you know, CMS, they're looking at whether or not there are gaps in terms of access to the types of technology, internet service, things like that, that people in rural areas will actually need. So, you know, we keep that in mind as well as we're developing programs and, you know, looking at different populations because, Uh, We want to make sure that, again, that's another potential barrier that we want to make sure that we can break down or uh, solve for when we're trying to um, support patients in their care. It's a very real issue in these rural communities about having bandwidth and access to internet. So something that we're always keeping in mind. That's a great point. I mean, as we on this podcast and elsewhere in device talks land, where we talk to companies about how they're incorporating new technology connected care into their products. We just have these discussions sort of with the assumption that they're going to be available to everybody, but we may have the greatest device that can do the greatest thing in the world. But if you don't have access to 5G or something of that like, right. then, then you're out of luck. That's, that's, uh, that's a great point. Well, let's, let's circle back a bit and talk maybe about root causes. Is there 
a root cause or an origin of, of health inequity? I will right, we'll take a quick break from this conversation to bring back Gary Hulecki, CEO of MTD Micromolding. Gary, how does MTD work with medical device companies? We specialize in designs that have, say, a high level of impossibility. Um, we are an en- engineering-driven company, so we do um, you know, design for molding. We do design for manufacturing. We do product design, uh, also help with uh, prototype tooling and bridge tooling to get the process started and to determine feasibility. And we also have the ability to scale up with uh, production manufacturing and full um, quality system to ensure that these products are delivered um, to the sterilizer or to a a warehouse. And finally, Gary, I want to know what is new at MTD Micromolding? What can you share? Well, this year we've kicked off, um, a lot of people have, done some additive manufacturing, a lot of 3D printing um, has been popular with med device companies. But the the problem with the 3D printing is it's out of a photopolymer that is, you know, if ultimately the part is going to be injection molded, a photopolymer really isn't uh, realistic. You know, it, it doesn't have the properties of a perfectly homogeneous molded, injection molded part. So you can't really do any high level testing. So what we've done is we've created, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, we've created a, uh, a mold that we can, say, mold a puck out of the material that is ultimately going to be injection molded for this product, and we're, a lot, we're able to machine it. So it, it gets you a lot closer and, uh, than 3D printing because it is going to be out of the material that is ultimately going to be injection molded. So it allows you to do some, say, higher level testing with uh, the part out of the material that's going to be injection molded. That's great. Thank you again to MTD Micro Molding for sponsoring this episode of Medtronic Talks. Thanks, Gary Halecki, for joining us on the podcast. If you would like to find out more information about MTD Micro Molding, I suggest you go to MTD Micro Molding, all one word, mtdmicromolding.com. Now, let's get back into this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. Is there a root cause or an origin of, of health inequity? You know, it can go back through U.S. history, right? Yeah, you could, sure. You could do a whole, you know, U.S. history lesson on that. And I think, you know, what we've tried to focus in on is really to say, what is the root cause from a data and analytics perspective? And how can we leverage what we know from better ways of identifying patients for, in particular, disease states to say, you know, are we identifying the right population, the right patients? You know, in the old days, it was easy. You would identify a population based on claims data or EMR data and say, you know, here we have a population of patients with diabetes or a population with disease X. But now it's we're able to actually stratify that data with some of the um, newer health equity metrics around race, ethnicity, language, gender, um, gender identity, sexual orientation to say, okay, where are the gaps? What is the root cause driving this? And then take it down even further, like we had mentioned earlier about social issues. Are there social determinants at play? Is it around uh, a language barrier? Is it around uh, transportation? Are there 
economic issues at play, what's going on, and really try to refine what is the root cause driving this so that we can then move on and think about, well, how are we going to solve for that? And how do we engage people? How do we better engage the patient, the caregiver, or the provider, you know, making sure that we have the right tools and resources for the providers to enable care for their patients. Then we can look at, okay, well, what is the right intervention? Is it a device? Is it a new care pathway? You know, what is that new solution that we can have? And then be able to measure it and say, are we achieving outcomes? And I want to mention there are probably two areas of measurement that are important. First of all is, are we achieving a clinical improvement? You know, in the example example of diabetes, say, you know, did we improve the hemoglobin A1C? That's one metric. But are we actually closing that gap? And this is, you know, where we can really start to be creative about how we can measure that. You know, we look at the observed over expected ratios. Medicare has a lot of quality measures that look at observed over expected. We're starting to look at the same. Are we able to close that gap from what we would expect to see and what we're actually observing? You know, earlier John mentioned, you know, some cardiovascular diseases. And I think it was the Journal of the American College of Cardiology had published back in 2017, some data around um, patients having aortic stenosis and the um, percentage of people who were referred for TAVR, the transcatheter aortic valve replacement. And in that study, you know, 83% of people who were referred were Caucasian and 13% were Black. And so these are the kinds of gaps that we're trying to solve, you know, to close. So when we measure, we of course want to measure good clinical quality outcomes, but in addition, are we starting to close that gap so that we can ensure access? And if we're not, that's okay. We, we go, it just means we go back to the drawing board and we figure it out. And that's why this measurement is so critical because it's about continuous process improvement. If we're like true engineers, you know, if we don't achieve that result the first time, we want to quickly get back to the drawing board and figure out why not, and then go through that pathway again of better ways of identification, engagement, better interventions so that we can achieve those outcomes. I was curious about, maybe this falls under the intervention, but if a person is not getting access to the treatments that they need because of where they live or how they look or how much money they have, I I would guess in most cases, they're not even aware of that, that there were options to them that were not made available to them. So is there a part of this that is making sure that folks know what they're entitled to and what they need to be advocating for? Is that part of the solution as well? Absolutely, Tom. Karen spoke before about using the term social determinants of health. And one of those is around education. So uh, you have variable levels of education in the population. It's really beholden on all of us in healthcare, whether we're uh, a manufacturer like us or whether you're a provider like some large health system or whether you're CMS to educate the population as to the common disease states and what therapies are available to them, what to do to first avoid the disease, but should you have it, what therapies are available. So awareness, starting with physicians and moving to patients is, is a critical piece to, uh, to addressing health inequities for sure. And the federal government and CMS now are really 
putting a tremendous amount of attention on health equity. President Biden signed an executive order around really promoting equity across all areas of the government, but Medicare really has picked up on this. And now we're seeing in the proposed rules some new quality measures around health equity. So health systems are really taking a close look at this. You know, as John was mentioning, you know, this is with providers and what are providers going to be doing about this? And in our role, we're really working in lockstep with providers. So as we keep an eye on what policies are coming out around equity, around measurement of health equity, we're working in lockstep with providers, health systems to say, what can we do in that community to really support them in achieving you know, improvements in access, quality, and outcomes. And so it's only by working together with providers in collaboration that we're really going to see some movement. And I'll just mention it's partnerships across the whole ecosystem. The device industry, for sure, it's working with providers, work, you know, seeing what policymakers are doing, you know, patient advocacy groups, it's quality stakeholders, really the entire healthcare ecosystem has to be in on this in order to make something work. You know, I, I think that Karen spent quite a bit of time talking about providers, and I think that that's really the hallmark of Medtronic's approach to health equities. It actually started with uh, the providers coming to us as there was increasing recognition of health disparities. They've always been around, but they had not been well recognized as, as I think we all appreciate until the last couple of years. And they came to us saying, we want to do something about health disparities in our population, in, in, in where our hospitals are, but we don't know quite what the next steps are. Do you have some ideas for us? And that's what drove us to really dive deeper into health equity. And we decided very early on that our approach would be a grassroots approach, one where we're working in individual communities for working on a certain disease with a certain hospital to attract a certain population to get them the high quality of care that, that they deserve. There's, we are undertaking policy work and, and, and other maybe more top-down initiatives, but the hallmark of, of our approach has been grassroots. And one of the reasons for that is, is that we think we can have more impact and then the second is that we think it's much more sustainable. If we're partnering with a health system, then that is a way where we can stay involved and engaged and go from the point where we measure the gap, identify the barriers to a point where someday we're going to be able to come back and repeat that study and demonstrate that we've closed gaps in care. And we can only do that, we feel, if, if we're in the community, taking the grassroots approach alongside of health systems to, to try to address this vexing problem. What does that partnership or, or effort with the healthcare system look like? What are you providing them? Is this, a, is this a service you're providing them or are you merely going into their data and sort of helping them understand it better? Or is there something else entirely that I'm missing? Can you give me a little more detail, either of you, on, on what that actually looks like? Yeah, you know, there are a variety of things that we're doing. You know, as John was speaking, I was thinking about some work that we did. First, looking at the state. So. The National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine came out with this framework of really an approach. And one pillar of that is to look at the community health needs assessment. So really, it's looking at what is going on in that particular state. Earlier, you mentioned rural 
health as one area. Absolutely. What, what's happening in West Virginia is completely different than what's happening in South Carolina and different than Kentucky. And so as we start to work with large health systems, we do some research and say, what's happening in that state? What are the key priorities from the state, from their payers, from the health system? What's driving this? Is it maternal health? Is it diabetes? Is it access? You know, we talked about internet access, you know, so whatever is going on in that community, we, we start to look at and then think about what are the resources that Medtronic can offer. So in our diabetes operating unit, what are some initiatives and some solutions that we have to offer that we can then bring to the health system and help be a part of that solution? There's a lot of work being done by providers and you know these large health systems, and we can be a part of that solution, a piece of the puzzle to make sure that we're leveraging technology. One of the things that that framework from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine did not incorporate when they did it was around technology. And so we've been talking about the role of technology here and how we can really leverage technology to help in advancing equity across the country. And it has resonated tremendously well with key stakeholders from quality organizations, leaders at large health systems. They say, absolutely. I mean, because they keep saying, how can we do more with less faster? And so technology is a piece of that puzzle, whether it's on you know, the data and analytics side or providing a technological solution to a disease state, bringing in that technology component really is critical. And, you know, whether it's diabetes, you know, looking at, you know, some of our devices that can be offered to patients, you know, and to provide access to them, but also looking at the care pathway. Are there barriers in terms of um, specialty providers? Are there not enough specialty providers in a particular area? So should we look at primary care providers and work with primary care in that particular region? So our business units are really working hand in hand with health systems to come up with some novel solutions once they figure out exactly what that barrier is. How does this fit into into Medtronic's overall mission? Uh, I mean, your overall mission is to improve health and to to create products that make people better. But this sort of analysis of how care is being delivered, it would appear to me to be in cases where it may not even involve Medtronic technology or or products. How does this fit into the the company at large? Is Is it seen as as a sort of a public service element that's necessary to be done, or is it part of each of the, the businesses and it's just part of built into your your strategy and DNA? No, I would say both, Tom. And what I mean is this, is that um, it's absolutely part of, of our mission to ensure as best we can that everyone has access to high quality care. And that's what drives the 90,000 employees at, at Medtronic. But you could also look at it from a pure business lens and work in addressing health disparities is could well be termed market development, right? You're expanding the market. And if you believe that your products can truly offer value or better outcomes for a group of patients who that 
you know, that that device is indicated for, then yes, you're doing something that is very consistent with your normal business practices, which is engaged in market development, but you're also satisfying the Medtronic mission of helping those in need. So they're very much complementary. And I think it's for that reason that I have great hope that this effort in health equity at Medtronic will be sustainable, will be long lasting because of these two drivers here, both emission and also just the simple concept of, of market development, which is so fundamental to our business. And if we're going to make changes, it's not easy. It requires the long haul. It, it, it's not something where you can just have the Medtronic Foundation write a check and think it's going to be fixed to, to a deserving organization, right? It requires continued long-term engagement. And so the fact that it is both the mission and also just in a pure business sense market development, I think is, is, is something very encouraging for those of us in the area. And, you know, Jeff has told us he wants us to make sure that this is, whatever we do is scalable, sustainable, and that we're actually making an impact. This is not about writing checks, as John said, this is really about making an impact. And I want to just highlight one other example with Virtua Healthcare in New Jersey, in Camden, New Jersey. And we had worked with this large healthcare system, also had been working with Medtronic Labs, which is a program that has been working out in rural Africa and India for over 10 years and has achieved outstanding outcomes in terms of improving hypertension in those communities. And when we started working with Virtua and hearing about some of the challenges that they face in Camden, New Jersey, we thought about some of the work taking place in other areas of the world and how could we bring in some of that work into Camden, New Jersey. And so we brought labs in to Virtua to see, is there an opportunity to partner and and come up with some kind of novel approach at providing outreach and screening to their community. And so now Medtronic Labs is going to be working with Virtua in that community at the Cherry Hill Clinic, providing screenings for hypertension and diabetes to bring people, you know, back in and keep them connected with their providers. And it's a novel approach because they use a phenomenal platform system they use community healthcare workers. It's really filling in a lot of gaps. And uh, we're really excited about this work taking place in Camden, New Jersey, and are looking forward to seeing the types of results that they can achieve there in, again, improving access, improving quality, and really driving those outcomes. We look at this as two stages. We look at uh, patients that exist in the community, and then we look at patients that exist in the health system. And the biggest problem is getting people who are not currently in their local health system into that health system. And so having an outreach arm like Medtronic Labs doing screening as they've done in India and Africa and now doing it here in the U.S. in uh, these minoritized populations has been critical. And now it enables us to go to the next stage, which is once they're in the system, then to offer them to make sure that they're getting the same quality care. So they've been identified, they're in the system, and now they can enjoy the benefits of technology. We spoke earlier about technology and technology can do one of two things. It can divide 
the haves and the have-nots. We were talking about internet and 5G earlier. Or it can democratize and it can enable everyone to get a similar high quality result. So if we can get folks, for example, with diabetes into the system and we educate the physicians in the system to the value of uh, a technology such as continuous glucose monitoring or to a automated insulin delivery system, we know that we can improve their blood sugar and decrease complications related to diabetes. People who are affluent, they probably would normally go see an endocrinologist who would be very much aware of these technologies, but people who are not so will have to first be brought into the system, secondly, be treated probably by primary care docs who will have taken upon ourselves to educate to the value of the use of technology to improve their average blood sugar. So it's a multi-step process, starting in the community and then getting those patients who are in the health system, the same level of care. And that's how we think we're going to start to see success. Two more questions. One looking in- internally, do your efforts inform either product development or clinical research? We talked earlier before we push record, Jennifer Doyle, Vice President of Clinical Research and Medical Science at Medtronic. We had her at our Device Talks Boston meeting talking about improving clinical trials through broader representation. Does any of what you're working on create information for your colleagues who are developing and testing new devices to make sure that they're being tested against an accurate representation of the population? Absolutely. That is, we take a multi-pronged approach to addressing health inequities. And we've spoken a lot today about our grassroots provider partnerships, but there are other aspects. One of them is taking an honest look at ourselves and saying, do we have adequate diversity in the trials that we sponsor? And Really, that critical look has demonstrated that in some places, in fact, that wasn't the case. And what are we going to do going forward to recruit patients into our trials that represent the true population who has that given disease? So we're holding ourselves accountable for ensuring that we have clinical trial diversity. And even before we get to the trials, We also have folks who are designing our products, human factors engineers, thinking about different populations and different races, ethnicities, whether they be the provider or the patient, and making sure that we are keeping in mind the specifics to each one. I'll give a small example. I'm a surgeon, and we are seeing more and more women surgeons. In general, women wear a smaller glove size, they have smaller hands, and yet our older generation staplers were really hard to close if you didn't have a big, strong hand. So we have factored, our human factors engineers have taken that into account and have reduced the size so that women surgeons, Asian surgeons can use the device with the same outcomes as, as a larger person, let's say, you know, may have in the past. So it starts with our engineering, it extends to diversity in our trials, and then and then we go from there with the other items that we spoke about in terms of addressing the barriers that exist out in the community. And, and Tom, just to add to that, there have not been great benchmarks out there in terms of diversity in clinical trials. What's the right number? And so we have joined MedTech Color, which is this collaborative organization with other industry and device leaders to do exactly that. Let's find out what could we create as benchmarks? What should they be? And so we have representation there. We have internal committees working on 
this as well as the operating units, as John was just describing. One other area of this, you know, how do we get that information out across Medtronic? We created an internal group called our Health Equity Advisory Committee, comprised of leaders from various operating units, some of our employee resource groups. We have um, representatives, different functions, whether it's compliance, healthcare economics and health policy, government affairs, all coming together and sharing best practices. And you have never seen a more engaged group on that committee that stays focused, comes to every meeting, loves to hear what's going on, shares best practices. I mean, the technology that we have is, of course, phenomenal. And the the designs that John just described are outstanding and that we have engineers who are listening to what's happening in real life and how can we adjust and modify that. But it's the 90,000 people behind that that make it work. And that's what I think has been so unique and so inspiring for us to see at work through this Health Equity Advisory Committee. It's not just about looking at data and and let's fill a gap and what can we do here or there. The passion and engagement of the Medtronic employees has really been inspiring as we've, you know, taken this on and and continue to do so. We're thrilled to do it and we look forward to seeing, you know, what is to come in the years ahead. That's great. And that leads well into my my final question, which was the externally directed question. Where does Medtronic fit into the broader industry effort to combat health inequity? It would seem that if you have a large forest fire, you want to coordinate your efforts to put it out with other firefighting companies. Is Medtronic working with closely with government agencies? Is there is there sort of a broader industry-wide effort that you're part of? How does your effort fit into the broader attempt to battle this? We're doing some of that, you know, with Advamed, you know, the industry trade association and, you know, partnering on some committees there. That's one piece of work. MedTech Color, as I mentioned, the various operating units are also very engaged in their respective specialty societies, whether it's the American College of Cardiology, for example, you know, being engaged with specialty societies is important. And also other key healthcare stakeholders like T1D Exchange for the diabetes group. So you see our operating units really taking the lead with some of the externally focused work with key healthcare stakeholders. So I think it's really across the board, you know, at a national level, we're doing what we can. We're talking to other organizations who you might think of as competitors. We're talking to say, what are we doing and what can we do together? So those conversations are absolutely happening. So it's really internally as well as externally and at you know local levels as well as some of the national levels to really try and tackle this. As we learn, we're all learning together in this right now. And you know, each week, each month, we learn a little bit more. We know a little bit more than we did last month. And so we it's just been growing and growing over the last several months. Karen may be too modest to, to mention one of our most external collaborate most important external collaborations. And that is she represents Medtronic sitting on committees that formulate quality measures and has been vocally advocating for the inclusion of health equity content to be put into those quality measures. And it's those quality measures that are created and then ultimately recommended to CMS 
that will absolutely drive change in behavior of health systems across the country when their finances to a degree will be dependent on satisfying quality measures that have a significant health equity component. And we expect private payers to, to soon follow on if, if they have not already. So that's a that's a, another key piece is that health equity is the right thing to do and is also the financially advantageous thing to do. Right. Just final, final question, Darren. Do you have a sense of what success looks like? Is this just something we need to keep doing forever? Do you have an idea of where this needs to lead or are we not there yet? It's a great question, Tom. You know, we have a role to play and success, you know, across the board is certainly to make sure that, you know, as we started off the discussion to make sure that everybody can attain their full potential and that they're not disadvantaged. You know, that's really that utopia. But if we can start to close some gaps and show that our interventions are moving the needle, you know, that's the first step and that we really want to see some outcomes and see that impact and make sure that we're doing this at scale so it's sustainable and that we're really seeing some outcomes. And for us, I think that would really be one definition of success to make sure that we can really improve access to care while improving quality and really driving those outcomes. And once we start to gain some traction, we'll start to learn more and more. And, you know, like any good predictive model, we'll, we'll learn from what we did in the past and then we'll maybe copy and paste it to something else and it will start to replicate. So I think we're just at the beginning stages of this. And once we can see what works and let it start to replicate and catch fire, I think that would be success. Terrific. All right. Well, this is an excellent discussion. Thank you both for uh, for your work in this effort and for joining us in the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. That's a wrap. Thanks again to MTD Micro Molding for sponsoring this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. Thank you to our guests, John DeChapel and Karen Shahidi, for joining us. And of course, thank you to you, our listeners. Please do us a favor and follow this podcast on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. You can also find it on Medtronic.com and DeviceTalks.com. But if you subscribe, it'll be sent directly to your listening device. We'd also be grateful if you would share this podcast episode on your social media channels. And when you do, please connect with me. I am on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M. I am the editorial director of Device Talks. You can also find me on Twitter at MedTechTom. Once again, that is a wrap. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, MTD Micro Molding, for sponsoring Thanks to our friends at Medtronic for making all of this happen. Tune in next time. We'll have another great episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast waiting for you. All right, Chris Newmarker. Now is the time when we tell our, our friends, our families, and our Device Talks listeners how they can find us on social media. Hopefully our friends and families know how to find us on social media, but I, yes, I usually like tell my family to co communicate with me over social media. <laughs> <laughs> like, Son, can you, you can connect with me on LinkedIn?
dad, I, I got some questions about like, yeah, send, send that to me. On, oh, you don't know how to, <laughs> you don't know how to write yet. Well, okay. No, wait, I need to get back on LinkedIn. Son. I need, but yeah, so you can find me on, if, uh, you know, even if you're not my family, you can find me on LinkedIn <laughs> as a uh, Chris Newmarker, uh, just like a new marker. Always, always happy to talk to people. And on Twitter, you are also new yes. marker as in a new marker. At new marker. Yes. Or at new marker. Exactly. Yes. All right. Yes. And I, I am on Twitter at MedTech Tom. I'm on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I, like Salem with an I at the end of it. And uh, please do reach out with to us. Please do connect to us when you share this podcast episode on those, uh, those social media channels. And of course, please do, what do we want folks to do, Chris? You got to like, follow, subscribe. Damn, that's good. You're just, you're just, you just, that's sharp. You just got that. Somebody <laughs> thought we had a recording of that. That like, was hammering. Like yeah, all right. Yeah, Ooh. come on, Jim. Come on, Jim. No, we are organic here. We are free range podcasters. Yes, like, follow, and or subscribe on any podcast uh, application, and you will not miss a future episode of Device Talks Weekly or our Striker Talks podcast, which went out yesterday, or our Intuitive Talks podcast, which we're uh, we're gearing up to do again. And if you'd like to subscribe to Medtronic Talks, please, uh, they have their own channel. Go to Medtronic Talks on any podcast player, and uh, you can have episodes of Medtronic Talks sent directly to your phone as well. So, so much med tech, so little time. Really? Yes. We're doing what we can here to 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 to. You're missing out the wealth of medtech information we are providing. A veritable fountain, a fountain, a geyser, a geyser of insights and entertainment. So yes, Excellent. we were going to start our 24 hour channel. <laughs> I think we'll, I, I'll I'll work 12 hours in the day and you can work 12 hours a night. How's that sound? That sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah we need to great, we yeah. need to do Twitch, right? We need to Twitch this puppy. Yeah, the people Twitch. can. People can see us do this <laughs> stupid podcast. <laughs> <laughs> turn into like, here's Chris sitting down writing an article. <laughs> That's right. Oh, hi. <laughs> Eating a potato chip. Anyway, all right. All right, there we go. That's, uh, that's a wrap, folks. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We'll have another full-fledged Device Talks Weekly Podcast episode waiting for you next week. Hey, everybody, just, you know, like, uh, turn off the news alerts. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the summer.